right, well, good morning. It's good to be with you. My voice is almost returning. I still have that little weird, like, tone going. <laughs> we were talking about that with Will, Will earlier. It's like, man, this thing won't go away fully, but Lord willing, this week, maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, I don't know, but it's kind of annoying, but God's good, so it's all, <laughs> it's all good with me. Um, well, if you have a Bible, we're going to just continue our series in the book of Colossians. So Colossians chapter 3 is where we land today. We've been walking through this book kind of verse by verse, uh, looking at it a little bit high level, not like every detail of every verse, but the big picture of these sections of Scripture. And if you, if you notice, even when we do our, our singing our songs, um, we, we're just saying about the goodness of God, and right before that, Somehow, it's yet not I, but Christ in me. And this book, of all the books, I would say, in Scripture, it is the most concise and precise uh, uh, in its language of saying, like, here is who Christ is in a short amount of time. Let me give you who Christ is. And Paul's been doing that. He started in chapter 1. Uh, we're talking about the image of the invisible God, that that is who Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God. We can know what God is like because Christ came, that God came in the flesh of Jesus Christ. This man of Nazareth was born of a virgin. We celebrate that at Christmas every single year. Uh, and we talk about this Jesus of Nazareth, but we find in Scripture that it's not like he's just a really good man. A righteous man, a holy man, uh, or a, a creation of God that is like this almost deity or like he's a little bit like a demigod. No, he is fully God, Paul has been saying. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the for- firstborn of all creation. And we learned that he created all things. That all things were created by him, but not just created by him, sustained by him. He holds everything together. This Jesus and he goes on to talk to these Colossian, this Colossian church, these believers. Um, I'm going to lower this here real fast. I feel like I'm looking into a mic every once in a while. Um, it, he, 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 he grounds everything for these, this Colossian church, these believers, and saying, like, this is who you are in Christ. By your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is who you now are. And everything has been rooted in, in this phrase, in Christ that you are in him. And Paul said, this is the reason I proclaim. I proclaim Christ. He says in verse 20 uh, of chapter 1, in verse 20, I I have it like circled so it's hard to see what it says, 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's writing this letter to, to encourage this church in their growth in Christ. And we've been walking through this, and Paul is establishing who we are. And last week we talked about how religion, religion is, is a bunch of rules to follow in hopes that you'll be accepted by God, right? Like you do certain things to be accepted by God. That's what almost every religion all over the globe, everywhere you go, and you look at different religions, it is a people who are trying to earn God's love or find him. Like he's uh, like hiding somewhere and you got to go uh, this giant cosmic hide and seek and you're going to try to find where God is and then now you found him, you're good and you're secure and you'll be able to enjoy him forever. And so Paul is saying like, no, this is not the case. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. It is about a standing that you have in Christ, that you have been united with Christ. I remember when Amanda and I, when we first got married, when we were dating, 
Uh, we met, as I've shared a few times, we met in Clearwater at a college that no longer exists, uh, but thankfully it did then, and I'm glad I landed there. I, I look at all the stories there, and you're like, God's hand was in all of those things. We're talking about God holding all things together, Him ordaining things, Him in control. Like, I look back over my life, and I see how all these instances led me to where I am today. But I remember, you know, when we first, when we first met, we were met through uh, orphans and through missions and different things, and we just we grew close to each other, and one day we got married, and that was a special day for me because it was a, such a special day as I felt like my life changed forever, and it went a very good direction. <laughs> like, it might not have changed that way for her. I'm not really sure still. That might be a little bit up to debate, but I remember even like, you know, when you're starting to do those things, for those of you that, that have kind of followed this uh, method or approach to, in marriage is I remember when our two, our two checking accounts joined together. It was also a glorious day, <laughs> not for her, for me. Like, I went from like, man, I just paid a really lot of money for that ring, uh, and I'm like, I am dirt poor. And so we get married, and she didn't have that much either necessarily, and then we're just scrunching through those first years. But things changed. Our identity, our place, we now became one, and we were united together. And so when we decided to go to Hartsville, South Carolina, and, and start there in ministry, we were together there. And then when we decided to go and when God started leading us into church ministry, we moved to this little town called Elberton, Georgia, and we, start, we started working in a church together. Like everything in life we did together. When, when I look at our relationship today, and you probably can see this in your own relationships, right? Like we become like the people we're around. You start to talk like they talk. You say the same phrases. Like, I find myself saying the same things that Amanda says, and she says some of the same things I say. My kids now doing the same thing. It comes with time with someone, right? You become like the person. And so Paul's saying, this is your relationship with God, that Christ, you have been united with him. You are not united together. You're, you're fused in together. It's, Jesus described it this way. I'm the vine and you're the branches. We're the branch and he's the vine and we're connected to him. Our life is dependent on the vine and Christ and we've been united with him. And so Paul, as he comes into chapter three, he's giving us some of the implications of this union that we have in Christ. He's given us these, these are things that are present. These are implied. These come from a place of your union with Christ. So this he's writing to the believers in, Coloss in Colossae. And I really believe this is a passage that we as a church and as individuals and I need to hear. And it is what this means now that you have been united with Christ. Or what it can look like for those who want to be or are starting to pursue Christ and putting their faith in Christ. And so as we look at this passage, I want to read the whole section and then we're going to work through it kind of systematically, kind of a verse at a time. But if you have a Bible, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It starts with this, in the ESV here, this little word named, said, if. It says, if then. I would first start this with my question to you, and I have it written in my Bible from years ago. I wrote this in my, when I was probably reading it on my own and, and studying God's Word and reading Colossians. I wrote the little simple statement of, have you been? Like, if then you have been raised with Christ. And the question then is if, right? Like, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have been actually united with Christ, here's what he says. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger with wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, in this union, in this union with Christ, here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. Will you pray with me before we look at this passage together? Father, uh, we just want to stop and and, and recognize this is your word. It's not um, man's word. This isn't even just Paul's word. You inspired, we believe in the inspiration of scripture, that you spoke through Paul exactly what was to be written. And we thank you for this letter that we've been studying. We appreciate it. We're thankful for it. It's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful to learn more about Christ. But today, Father, I pray that we would listen to your word humbly, that you would speak to my heart, that you would speak to each of our hearts, that your word would, like a two-edged sword, pierce our heart, lead us to change through the Spirit of God. I pray that we would be listening and open to what you have Uh, to say to us today. So God, we pray that we would submit to the authority of Scripture in all aspects of our life, and we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, well, here, so Paul's given us these implications, and the first implication, very simply, is this, is that we're to seek the kingdom of God. So you, like, as you are united with Christ, naturally, you're going to seek His kingdom. This is implied, this is what happens when you're united with Christ. You're going to seek the kingdom of God. And here's the thing, though, it's, it's the, 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 the word here in the Greek in, in, uh, for seek is the idea of it's a present imp- imperative, meaning it's ongoing. We're to keep seeking. This is not to be just on Sundays. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In his model prayer for the disciples, he told them what? If you remember, a lot of people, you know, I've, again, I grew up playing sports and a lot, of, a lot of football teams, they want to pray the Lord's Prayer right before their game. And you're like, why? Like, let's, let's pray the Lord's Prayer before I go crush people's heads. <laughs> like, you know, lead us not into temptation. But I really want to crush this guy, God, but lead me not into temptation. And so they pray these prayers. But in that prayer, this model prayer that Jesus, when they asked him, Jesus, teach us to pray. How do we pray? I want to pray like you. I see you go off and you pray to the Father. How am I to talk to God? How am I to talk to the Father? And he tells them, And in that prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we as followers of Jesus are to seek his kingdom above all else. He's saying, look at what he says here in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. In verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. 
You know, as a follower of Jesus, we're to, we're to be looking upward. We're to put our gaze, we're to fix our eyes on Christ, where it tells us here he has been seated at the right hand of God. You know, but when you think back about this past week, what have you been thinking on? What have you been setting your minds on over this past week? You know, we're to be looking at Christ, pondering Christ, thinking about what he loves, what he wants. Our focus should be directed at him. But what do you find yourself thinking about? I know what I find myself thinking about sometimes. You know, most of us are looking actually down. We're looking down at our phones, right? We're missing the real world right in front of us anyways, but we're looking at our phone, right? We look at our phone and how quickly we can get caught up looking at TikTok and reels and just reel after reel. And you're like, before you know it, you're like 20 minutes into just mindless entertainment of, I mean, they're pretty funny. I'm not going to lie. I mean, they're, they're hilarious. That's why they're addictive, right? Like you can just like quickly, you're like, wait, what happened to my time? I've just been looking at reels all day. I mean, think about how much time we waste not thinking about the things of God's kingdom and seeking his kingdom first. I mean, if I think back over my week, you know, what have I been focused on? Job, maybe it's your health or sports or what has consumed your thinking? A part, a part of Sunday mornings, a part of our gathering, the reason we gather collectively as a body of believers is to refocus, to reorient our thinking. Why do we sing songs about Christ? It's to reorient ourselves. It's to fix our gaze on Him, the goodness of God. To look to Christ, who is our life, we see in this passage. We're to refocus, put our, our eyes on Him. You know, but here's the question, why? Why should we do this? Why should we seek the things that are above? Why, if this is an implication of our union with Christ, why? Look what he says. He says, why? Because the few things, he says this, uh, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Why should we? Because he is our life. He's our everything. He is who we need. Like, he sustains us. We were talking about this earlier in chapter 1. He sustains us. He is our actual life, and we need to be hidden with him, but our union with him puts us in that place. If you read the Psalms, Psalms are such a, a unique book because they're, they're, it's a long book, but it's, and they're not necessarily connected, right? Like there's sections that are connected. Um, certain sections of the Psalms are connected. But ultimately, like you have to read them like a chapter at a time, like one chapter at a time and look at that whole chapter together. So like chapter one, for instance. But when you read the Psalms, one of the things that you see from the psalmist, the different ones, a lot of them were written by David, some were Solomon and others um, that, we don't, that go unnamed. But what you see over and over again is they're, they're, the Lord is my refuge. He's a strong tower. He's a help and a, a present help in time of need. He is, he is a place to hide under. He's like a strong rock. He's a, a, he's a strong tower. He's, a, he's our refuge and strength. He, are, he is these things. And so he's saying, why should you seek the, the kingdom of God? Why should you fix your gaze upward? Because that's where Christ is and he is your life. He's your everything. He's your, he's your sustenance. I mean, the Bible talks over and over again this. Our lives should be centered on Him. I want my life to be Christ-centered. But I look back over my week and I'm like, man, I went another week not really living for His kingdom. I was living for Eric's kingdom. 
Think about what pleases me, what makes me happy, what brings me joy, not on what brings Christ joy and honor and, 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 and value to him and pointing others to him. I mean, we say as our mission statement, we want to be and help people to, to be full. Like we want them to, to, to have joy in following Jesus, but also make him known. But man, I look back over my week and it's like, how much was I doing that? How much was I doing that with my children? How much was I doing that with a spouse? How much was I doing that with coworkers, friends, people I ran into? Was I showing Christ to them? Maybe not, especially if I'm just constantly looking at my phone or getting caught up in the things of this world. But when we seek the things that are above, this is how our life should be. We should be looking to Christ. I love McShane. Uh, he's a... a He's been, he's been passed away for years, but he was a, a great theologian, and uh, he said this. This is a really good quote. I'd encourage you to write it down. He says, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. But think about, man, my week, I'm going like, I so put my focus on me. I, 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 I looked at what is going to make me happy this week. And he's saying, because of your union with Christ, you've been united with Christ, your affections, your, cha- your, your focus, you're to fix your eyes on Christ. For every look at self, man, take ten looks at Christ. And here he continues on in this passage, and he, and he shifts. And so he's saying, hey, if you've, been, if you've been raised with Christ, so the idea of he's been connecting us to his death. If you've, been, if you've died to sin, if you've died in Christ and his death, and if you've been raised with him, again, he's speaking to your union. You died with him. You raised with him. You'll be glorified in heaven forever with him. You'll be raised with him. You will enjoy eternity with him. He's saying this is who you are, and here's these implications. The second implication is this of our union with Christ is that we will put to death, put this in your notes, put to death all sinful desires. We're to put to death all sinful desires. Look what he says. He gives us two lists of five. Each of them are basically connected to each other, these these five things he mentions. But he says this in verse five, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so he's saying, he's saying, we need to put this to death. Well, what are we to put to death? Well, first he mentions here sexual immorality. And he said, this is meant to cover, and throughout Scripture, this is meant to cover all sexual activity outside of marriage. You see, the Greek word that's used here is, this, is the root word porneia, which obviously when you just hear that word, you're probably like, that sounds a lot like pornography. Exactly. That's where we get our word pornography in our culture today. It's Ultimately, what he's saying is it's sexual sin. And if you look at our world, this is our culture. Our culture, we are a sex-driven culture. You don't have to go, all you, like, I know we were talking last night about, like, the only event that people watch sometimes is the Super Bowl, you know, right? Like, but when we watch the Super Bowl, right, when you watch those ads, what is used? What's the driver behind? They're like, let me show you a, a very attractive woman for about 10 seconds, and then here's what you should buy. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Because they know this is the phrase, right? Sex sells. This is our culture. What is the biggest industry? Billions upon billions upon billions of dollars is the porn industry, and it destroys lives. It's destroyed so many lives. I've been a youth pastor for years, and I've worked with guys who struggle so hard. I remember discipling a man. Some of you have been through every man of worry. I remember I was meeting with this guy. He was a small group leader with our students, 
<clears throat> and, I mean, he, he opened up on a lot of his struggles. I mean, here he is, 45 years old, has two kids in the student ministry in high school, and he's telling me, man, I have struggled almost my whole life with pornography. He's like, I've struggled. I, I, don't, I don't want it, but I continue to pursue it. I continue to pursue sexual immorality. And Paul's saying, you need to put this to death. Put it to death. Don't let it to reign in your life. Don't let it to be supreme. And so this is why, going back to the first implication, is we're to fix our eyes on Christ. When we get caught up in the world, when we get caught by the, I, remember, I mean, I remember this, when we were in Clearwater, man and I were talking about this just the other day, in Clearwater, I think it was the, um, the home of the original Hooters or something like that, and there was these billboards constantly down, down, um, down uh, the, the main strip of, um, in Clearwater, of all these advertisements, and most of your advertisements, they're trying to pull you in, and, and what is used so often is sex because it sells and so they'll put scandalous addressed women or different things to try to attract people and to pull you away from looking at Christ and looking to the things of this world. And one of the biggest areas is sexual sin. What, here's the reality is this. What makes it immoral is that God has clearly forbidden it. Sex is definitely not a bad thing. On the contrary, God created it. It's glorious and beautiful thing. But God gave specific instructions that it should only occur within the covenantal relationship of marriage. God calls believers to put to death all sexual sin. He goes on to say impurity, but ultimately all of these are grounded in this idea of sexual sin. All of this whole list here of these five things. He says, the next one he says is impurity. What does he mean by impurity? Well, it's a moral uncleanness. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. Here, this is the absolute opposite. This is impurity. This needs to be put to death. The pornography, the sexual sin, the outside of how God designed it, needs to be put to death. Stop toying around in it. Get rid of it. Here's the ultimate truth. I've heard this quote, and I've, been, I've used it ever since because I've tried to allow it in my life. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You don't let sin, man, like another phrase is this, keep short accounts with God. Like, don't let sin just dwell in your heart and then, like, every so often, like, okay, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Amen. And, like, keep short accounts. Be a repentant follower of Jesus. Repent and turn from it. Kill sin or it will kill you. The next one he mentions is passion. It's an uncontrollable desires. Again, this is, and he's speaking to it, sexual addiction. This is our culture. Pursue what you want. You have a desire, act on it. I mean, right now we're in a month called Pride Month. And people celebrate de sexual deviancy from outside of God's command. And it's celebrated because it's like, hey, pursue who you are, how you feel, your desires. If you have a sexual desire for a person of the opposite sex or of the same sex, hey, pursue that. Because that's what, that's what God, quote, gave you. And it's like, no, that's your sin nature. It's opposed to the things of God. And he's saying, don't allow these uncontrollable desires to rule in your heart. Kill it. Put it, this is the strong language Paul's using here. He's saying, put it to death. Put to death these things. And then the next one he says is evil desires. What does he mean here? He means lusts. Man, here's the, it's the absolute opposite of love. Lust is the opposite. Love, love gives. Love is sacrificial. Love says, I'm going to give of myself for, the, uh, for the, the, the benefit of another. 
I'm going to put them first. I'm going to seek what they want. Lust says, I want, I will have, I'll take. Lust takes, love gives. And here he's saying, kill this evil desire in your life. Paul says, put it to death. And see, Paul is speaking from the acts of the sin, and he's working his way, as you see the list going, to the heart. He starts from just the act, right? Sexual immorality, get rid of it. Don't live an immoral sexual life. And then he talks about impurity and passion, and he's getting to the heart issues, evil desires. And then he says next, he says covetousness. What Paul is getting after is he's saying these things should not be in your heart. Look, I want you to turn with me, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, Paul gives us, I mean, Jesus, again, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, so I quoted earlier from chapter 5 as well, uh, when I was saying blessed are the pure in heart. As it says in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But here he's saying, put to death impurity. It's a complete opposite. But look at chapter 5, verse 27. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching. He's sharing. He, it's his, his words. Obviously, Scripture is all God's word. Here, Jesus is speaking. So sometimes your Bible, if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll have Jesus' words in red. And so you might have that there in front of you. But in verse 27, he says this. You have heard that it was said. So talking about, talking about the Old Testament, he's saying, you might have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, right? Like one of the Ten Commandments. You should not commit adultery. Here's what Jesus says in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is he saying? He's saying it is a heart issue. It's not just an action issue. It's not just something that you do. It starts in the heart, and it comes from an evil heart. And Paul's saying, be who you are. This, again, this isn't a legalism of like, okay, don't, uh, give me a lot of do's and don'ts. Don't do this and do this. And, and this is who you should be. He's saying, be who you should be and who you are in Christ. You've been united. This is an implication that you're naturally going to be putting to death the sinful desires in your heart. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This is a, a very similar book. Um, Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians, they're all in the kind of the prison epistles of Paul as he's writing. So it's just a couple pages back from uh, Colossians. So you've got Galatians, you've gone a little too far. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all written by Paul, the apostle. But in Galatians, I mean, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this, and starting in verse 3, I want you to see this, because why should we kill this sin? Why should we master it. Here's why he says, and it says it actually in our passage, we'll see it in a second in Colossians, but he says it here very explicitly. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, same thing he's saying very similarly to in our Colossians passage. He says, must not even be named among you. If you have an NIV version in front of you, it says not even a hint, not even a hint of sexual sin should be named. Like people shouldn't be like, hmm, Shouldn't be like you should in the workplace questioning like this person's really flirtatious with people and though he's a married person or she's a married person like there shouldn't even be a, a hint of sexual immorality named among you and he says this as is proper among saints notice what he says in verse four let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead notice what he says he says not this but instead let there be thanksgiving interesting. 
that he wouldn't say, let there be like love or let there be pursuit of God or let there be holiness. No, he says, instead of pursuing sexual sin and purity and foolish talk and all that stuff, rather let there be thanksgiving. Why? Because that's what a greedy heart pursues, right? A covetous heart says, I deserve that. It's not a grateful heart. It's an ingrateful heart and says, I need, I want, I'll have. But he says here, he said, let there be thanksgiving. But notice he says in verse 5, why should we be putting these things to death? Here's what he says. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul is saying, this is why you put this to death. Why? Because look back at our passage in Colossians 3. He says, put to therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, this is verse 5, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And did you catch that? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He's saying God's wrath is coming for people who live in this. And this is what he says. Notice what he says in verse 7. This he's saying, this is how you used to live. He says in verse 7, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. He's saying this is who you used to be before your union with Christ. Again, this is an implication of this isn't make you clean. Putting to death this, this stuff and trying to defeat it doesn't clean you. It doesn't fix you. No, it, it, it shouldn't be a part of the believer's life, but what creates a new life in you is, I was, we're reading through the book of John right now, and in John, I was just reminded of that in John 3, you know, everyone, a lot of people know John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In that conversation, he's having a conversation with Nicodemus about new birth and like about being born again. Like you need a new you. You don't just kind of fix you. I mean, I had a Mustang, a 1966 Mustang. I loved it. It, it was a little bit beat up when I first got it, and I spent a lot of my senior, junior and senior year in high school fixing this thing up. I loved it. My dad was a mechanic, and so he helped me some, and I had actually one of my physics teachers who loved Mustangs. He helped me restore it, and so we spent a lot of time uh, working on that car and trying to make it look good, but to be honest, there was some things that thing needed to be stripped down all the way bare again, and it needed to be sandblasted, get rid of it, every bit of that rust. But instead, what was I doing? I was using a little Bondo here and there, kind of made it look good and then painted it, and it looks great. But I bet whoever has it right now had to fix all that because it just kind of got covered up. You see, th this is, you can't just put to death to cover up your sin and just fight it. No, you need a rebirth. You need to be made new in Christ. You need to be united in Christ. You can't fix these things on your own. You need Christ. And he's saying the Colossians, they once walked in this, but they are not that way anymore. And this is the implication of us as followers of Jesus. Your union with Christ leads you to put to death the sinful desires. And sexual sin has ruined lives, homes, ministries, all sorts of things. Paul says we must put these things to death. And here Paul transitions um, to uh, this a new list. And he says this. He transitions from sexual sin to societal sin, I would say. He takes it to a place of our relationships and how that's affected through our speech, what comes out of us. And he says this in verse 8, But now you must put them all away. And he gives another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, 
and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. And he gives us this list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, do not lie. All these things are how you communicate with and deal with other people. He's saying, don't let anger, this should be being put to death. Put it away. Man, I struggled, I struggled hard with anger in high school. I kind of alluded to that when last night, talking about football and stuff like that. But in all seriousness, in baseball and other things, man, my anger would get the best of me over and over again. I've, I think I've said this before. I've been kicked out of more sports games than I could probably count, and that is terrible. Because um, I was claiming to be a follower of Christ at the time, but I don't think I really was. But I, I would just get angry. I would get angry not just at other people or just the ump. I would get angry at myself, too. And it's like, I cared too much about me, and I cared too much about my perception by other people, and it led to anger. And so he's saying, put this anger away from you. Put this wrath, this hatred, and this such strong language of anger towards other people away. And malice, I mean, you're speaking with ill intent. You're speaking with a, a desire to harm. Man, like, I don't know if you've experienced that um, ever before, but I remember in high school, there was this, this one girl, she, uh, she was just like the natural, I mean, like, I want to say, say this too lightly because I'm trying to be strong on this, this point, but, but like she was just one of those natural people, the kind of people like just made fun of. Like, it was just easy. And it was like, she seemed to take it well. <laughs> it was like, so everyone just kind of did it. But if you've ever been on the receiving end of this kind of behavior, you know it hurts. It hurts deeply. And it hurts the closer someone is to you when they speak ill of you or malice towards you. He's saying, these things shouldn't be even mentioned among a believer. This needs to be put away. Slander. Talking, rather than talking to someone, you talk about someone. And you slander them. You talk about them behind their back. And he says, no, this shouldn't be obscene talk. This is that locker room talk a lot of times among guys. Just joking around and have these just inappropriate jokes. Kind of water cooler talk. And then he wraps it up and he says, do not lie. Man, isn't that our culture? I mean, I know there's a lot of views on Trump and different things. You know, I might like some of his policy and all those things. But I think we can all agree. I, got, I don't even know if he knows what the truth is or <laughs> what is or what isn't truth. Um, but you look at every politician, man. You look at all these politicians. You're like, that guy, is he telling the truth? Likely not, right? Politicians, they're just telling you what you want to hear. And then they're, now they're going to go to another audience and they're going to tell that audience what they're going to hear. One of them's the truth and one of them isn't. Or maybe both are not truth. I don't know. But there's that tendency to just lie. And he's saying this should not be a part of a believer. It should be put off. He says these should not be even mentioned among them. In Mark chapter 7, you can turn there if you want, but in Mark 7, I'll just read it quickly. In Mark 7, uh, Jesus again here is, is talking and he says, what defiles a person? You know, and he, and he says in verse 20, he says, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. Not what you eat, not what you take in. That, he's, he's saying that's not what defiles a person. Because the Pharisees and others were saying, oh, your disciples, they're eating unclean foods. They're, they shouldn't be doing that. That's defiling them. Now they're, they're ceremonially unclean. They shouldn't be before God. And he's like... It's not what you eat that defiles a person. It's what comes out of a person. And see, and James talks about this, how our speech 
is a really a definite barometer of our heart, how we interact with people. James says the tongue, it controls the whole body. You know, yesterday I was working in my yard. Hard to know that I would actually work in my yard. Amanda was like, are you really cutting the grass again? I'm like, yes, I'm cutting the grass again. Okay, I had a reason. I found out that I had my mower on the wrong setting, so I needed to cut it again like two days later. I'm like, oh, man, okay. I was <laughs> that was my excuse this time. Maybe next week it'll be another excuse. I don't know, but no, but uh, I was cutting the grass, and it's like, I mean, thankfully it's still not crazy hot, but it's Georgia, and it just gets really humid super fast. And I remember, I'm like, why did I not get up early to do this? It's like 11 o'clock, and I'm cutting the grass. But I'm like, I love my grass, and so I'm going to cut it. And so I get up, <laughs> and Amanda shakes her head. And I <laughs> go to cut the grass, and I mean, I just get, start getting, I mean, sweating. I can't stop sweating. I go in the house, and I'll turn the fan on, and every time I turn around, they turn the fan off on me again. I'm like, leave the fan on. It's so hot. And so, but anyways, I mean, like, quickly, we're working in the garage. I got both cars in the garage. I was pretty proud of myself for this one. I was like, it has been a year, and I finally got two cars in the garage. We'll see if it lasts a week, maybe two. I don't know, but we'll see. But I was just working outside and working really hard and getting just really nasty. And if you've ever, if you've ever done that and you got really nasty, you're like, okay, you can't wait till you get a just nice, good shower, and you get all clean. And, and Paul, Paul's using this language of putting off and putting on. He's like putting off, and his idea is clothing, of taking off the filthy clothing and putting on this righteous clothing, which is ultimately put on yourself, not put on yourself. It's put on by Christ. It's his righteousness. You've been clothed in his righteousness. But he's putting this idea on, and it's like, how silly would it be for me to go get my shower, get all cleaned up, you know, get the Q-tips out, everything, you know, full cleaning, right? Like, and then all of a sudden to be like, all right, so I'm going to go put those clothes back on that I was just wearing. You put those clothes on and you're like, that is awful. I did not know I was smelling that bad. Appreciate you uh, putting up with me for that little bit before I got the shower kind of thing. You know, it's this idea of like, why would I, why would I go back and put those things on? This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, do not lie to one another, verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And he's like, like why would you go back to, if you're going to put this off, why would you put it back on if you're united in Christ? We see that the genuine believer would never do that. That's why he said earlier in verse 7, and these you two once walked. You used to be this way. He said similar language to the Corinthian church when he told them, you used to live in these sins, but now you've been washed, you've been cleaned, you've been sanctified in Christ. Why would I ever put these things out? How foolish that would be. But ultimately, though, this isn't just a list of do's and don'ts. This is being who we have been saved to be. And the third implication, the final one, I'm going to re- quickly wrap this up here. He says this, and the third one is this, is this should be a mark. This is an implication of our united, or being uni- united with Christ is this. You should have continual growth in becoming more like Christ. You should see continual growth in becoming more like Christ. You see, all of this is a process of becoming more like Him. Becoming who we are already. Just becoming more like Him. God declares you righteous because of what He has done at the cross of Calvary. When He died on the cross, He paid the penalty. You see, that's the, this is the amazing truth of the gospel, is where it says to us, and it tells us in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Here's the wonderful truth of the gospel is this. God's wrath is coming on the unrighteous, on those who are sexually immoral, those who live in these sins, 
who have not been in Christ. He says the wrath of God is coming for those. But here's the great truth. The gospel tells us that the wrath of God came and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came and lived a sinless life, came and did perfectly as the Father would ask. He lived, submitted to his will. He takes the death that we deserve. He absorbs the wrath of God for us. He takes my place. I mean, the way I've, I've heard it and the way I've said it for years is, is if you want to wrap up the gospel in a short little phrase, it's this, Jesus in my place. The gospel is Jesus in my place. It's him taking the wrath that I deserved. And this is the wonderful truth is that this doesn't have to be me and this does not have to be you. We don't have to experience the wrath of God if we put our faith in Jesus and we pursue holiness. But you don't pursue the holiness to get accepted by God. You pursue these things because of who you are in Christ. And here's what he says in verse 10. I, want you to, I don't want you to miss it. So he says, Put off the old self in verse 9 with its practices and having put on the new self, notice what he says. It's not like, boom, you're just instantly like Christ. Like, if you're like me, I struggle. There's struggles every day, every week. There's different sin struggles. There's different things, pride, selfishness, self-centeredness. And he says, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And he says, in this place, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, every person from every tribe, tongue, language, people of every, um, from every place all over the world, if they've placed their trust in Christ, we are all united together as one. The Bible tells us that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can either do that in this life and submit to him and seek his kingdom above all else, or you can live this life for yourself and then one day be forced to bow your knee to Christ and then be punished for all of eternity, separated from him. The wrath of God is coming. But here's what he's saying. He's saying all this is a process of becoming more like him. It happens on a daily basis. It happens how? How does it happen? It goes back to our first point. While you seek the things that are above, while you're seeking those things and you're setting your minds on upward and on Christ and putting to death these sins, this is how that growth happens. But specifically, notice what he says. This growth happens by being renewed in knowledge. How does this knowledge come? It comes from the Word of God. It comes from knowing more about Him and who He is and what He's done. I love what William Hendrickson said. He said this, when a man is led through the waters of salvation, he says these are, ankle, these are ankle deep at first, but as he progresses, they become knee deep, and it further works up and finally impassable except by swimming. He says ultimately the person is inundated in Christ. We grow as we spend more time with our Creator. So I was saying earlier, the more time I'm with Amanda, the more I'm like her and she's like me. The more you're with someone, the more you become like them. You, who you surround yourself with is who you will become. Over and over again, that's true. The people, the friendships, the relationships, you will in a, you'll become very similar because you're just spending time together naturally for us. How do we grow? How do we become more like Christ? We grow in, as he says here, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Scripture is pointing us to Christ. And he's calling us to put our faith in him. And if you have placed your faith in him, verse one, if then you have been raised with Christ, then we're to seek him 
his kingdom. We're to put to death the sin, the sexual sin, the deviancy of this world. We're to be putting to death those things, and we're to be growing in knowledge of Christ. And we do that through time with him. Listen, this is God's word. It's not my word. It's not man's word. And as we walk through this book, this is convicting because sexual sin and sin in this world is so besetting. It is so easy. There's so much access, especially to sexual sin. Man, we need to take seriously, because here's the reality. I said this quote earlier, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Live in light of who you are if you're in Christ. Live in light of it. Live with eternity. Put your minds and your hearts on things above, not on the things of this world. Put it towards Christ and continue to grow and become more like him. Let me pray. Father, we love you. God, I I say that with, it's easy to say, it's easy to read and say, I love you, God, and to say uh, these things. But God, I pray. Man, God, I pray. That these, these, these implications, these realities of being united in Christ in salvation and by faith alone in Christ alone, that this would be true of me, God, that I'd be seeking your kingdom first, that I'd look to your will and not my will, that I would be putting to death the sins that so easily entrap us and pull us away from God. I pray that I'd be taking that seriously and going to war with the sin in my heart. God, may I be marked, my, my life be marked by repenting of sin. As soon as I recognize it, God, I thank you. I'm thinking of yesterday. There was a moment where I felt tempted in sin, and I thank you, God, that you brought me aware to it and helped me to to repent before even doing anything. God, I just thank you so much for your gospel, your spirit that indwells in us as followers of Jesus to guide us, to lead us. I pray that we be a people that would pursue holiness, not to be accepted by you, but because of who we are in Christ we would seek your kingdom that we would seek your will and God might we grow in the knowledge of Christ the image of the invisible God we thank you for Christ we thank you for what you have done for us thank you for the salvation that's offered and extended freely as a gift to us to all those who believe so help us to live by faith and not by our own strength own talent, our own ability, our own willpower to live a good life. May we see those things as empty, worthless. Help us to live in light of eternity. We love you, God. We ask for your help in all these things, and we ask it in your son's name.